The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I'm actually, I mean, I guess I probably say this most of the time, but I I am extra excited about the guest that I have on today, and I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be on here. This is James Pryor, um, long-time PC aficionado. Um, I've been in the industry a a fairly long time, working at different companies from Sci-Fi and Ice Giant and AMD and also been a tech journalist, so been around a, a while. Happy to, to chat with you about all the fun things that's going on. And, and and I suspect that this conversation should be extra good because when you have someone that's done, I mean, right, just like Daniel Nenny, who's you know, one of the founders of SemiWiki.com, like the guy is used to writing and covering the news in addition to knowing what he's talking about. Having both of those things in your background usually means that you can... Uh, I don't know, I guess translate well when talking to us gaming hardware channels better than maybe some of the only technical or only journalistically minded people. Yeah, I hope so. Let's see if it works out. Well, I do want to start here with your background, though. I mean, you know, as much as you want to say or not say it, (laughs) where are you from? You know, what would you study? Where are you? You know, where's home? Yeah, so home is now in Texas in the Hill Country. Um, Moved here for AMD, but uh, stayed because just like Texas, so gosh darn much. Uh, but uh, probably you can guess from the accent that I'm from a little further east, the other side of the pond. I grew up in, in England and went to the University of Portsmouth where I studied electrical and electronic engineering. Um, and it was there where I got my first uh, tech job. I was a, a technical support consultant, uh, basically doing programming for this big mains, it was a mainframe, running on VAX mainframes application. And uh, after a couple of years of that, I didn't... Uh, didn't enjoy it so much, so I started looking for a new um, new job. And I was also taking Taekwondo classes at the same time. My instructor said, hey, look, <laughs> you know, you could go to the States, train with a grandmaster, do a couple years, come back, open up your own karate mm-hmm. school. And I'm like, I'm young, I've got no debt, no significant other. Let's, uh, when am I going to get this opportunity again? Let's go. So I went to the States and, and started doing that, met a girl, and that changes the ending of every story. So ended up staying, and, and that's uh, how I got uh, – uh, to change over into uh, back into IT and back into technology. I was uh, working at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and there's what's now called Smart Grid, but back then was called Facilities Management because they had this uh, big, big uh, plan on doing power and uh, utility and other essential service monitoring, pulling it all together using building automation. And that was something that had to be highly reliable. So we built this big virtualized data center that was co-located between Birmingham and Huntsville. Um, and that was a that was a fun, fun time, fun project. Um, but I but I left them to go to, to AMD. Yeah, I mean, 
I didn't know that you originally came here for Taekwondo. My God, you're like the Joe Rogan of the chip world. You thought you were going to do something else, and then you're just like, no, actually, I think I think I'm going to do this other thing. Yeah, it was just a great opportunity, so I said yes, and uh, I think I like how it worked out. <laughs> Well, I mean, it sounds like you do. You you certainly don't have the thick English accent anymore. Although I will say you this combination of like a Texas and English accent is quite interesting to hear. I, I got to admit, you have a very unique accent. Yeah, 20 years in Alabama and Texas makes me talk funny. I had to, I spent the first year saying everything <laughs> twice because first thing everybody would say to me was, what? Because they didn't understand what I said. So I had, to, I had to lose the accent. It's funny, you know, people in the U.S. say that, you know, where are you from? You're not from around here. And then people in the U.K., where are you from? You're not from around here. Yep. Man with no home. I mean, what, what got you into PC gaming then specifically? was I mean, Uam writes in, he's one of the patron supporters, and he asked, was it Age of Empires? I'm just letting <laughs> you know. The last three guests, they said Age of Empires was the game that got them into PC gaming. Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, my gaming uh, journey started a lot earlier than PCs. Like, um, you know, my dad worked for IBM. So I remember when the first oh. PC um, clone came into the UK because, you know, he, he brought it to the house before it was generally available on the market. And I saw it and everything else. So my first PC gaming experience was on OS2 Warp with some kind of funky um adventure game we had to move this little guy around and, and, and tell him what to do it was kind of a, a weird little adventure game but before that i've been gaming on uh, ataris and amigas and everything else so it's um the first windows gaming if we're going to call pc gaming windows gaming sure then what really hooked me was codemasters touring cars 2 that game, I just oh. love because you know, me and my dad, we would sit down and watch the racing on the weekend. We watched Formula One. We'd watch British touring cars, European supercars, Australian supercars, all the different kinds of racing. And you know that game, it just crushed the the PC we had at the time, um, which mm. was a uh, you know a Pentium Two, I believe, with a a Rage One Twenty Eight video card. And I- I'm looking at pictures of it. It looks. Pretty old, oh, yeah. but really good for 1988 or 1998. I've got to say, this this looks really good for the time. Yeah, it did. It blew me away with the graphics. Like I remember the transition to vector graphics and just like trying to make 3D, and it was just it was mind blowing. I mean, I remember test drive on the Atari and just thinking, holy crap, this is the future of gaming. But I just don't know how they're going to make it more realistic. Like, how do you turn these these flat polygon sides into things with textures and whatever else. So it's been super like amazing to watch the evolution of gaming, but age of empires was a strong influence. Love that game. I did <laughs> uh, play a lot of that, but I probably played uh, Dune battle for Arrakis way more, you know, the original pre command and conquer version, um, that, and, you know, it, it all blurs together to me now at the time. It was yeah. super important. I remember it was super important to me at one point that PC didn't take off and that Amiga or Atari stayed like as the gaming platform. But now I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't really care. It's, it's it, wherever you can get good gaming experiences is where I want to go. But yeah, Age of Empires, Talker 2, Battle for Arrakis Dune, you know, Star Trek Birth of the Federation. There was a ton of games. You know, I'd spent a lot of time playing sensible soccer with friends you know, just all crowded around the computer, lots of different things. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more on your point of like, 
who cares where you're playing the games. I mean, I, I mean, the first games I played were on the family computer. You know, again, this was before everyone just had three computers with them at all times. <laughs> you know, this was the family computer in my mom and dad's bedroom that I had access to only to cer- during certain hours of the day. But then eventually you go into like Nintendo and PlayStation consoles. And then lately it's just kind of merged back. Um, but you have done a lot of reviews too. I was looking at your Rage 3D history and the 6670 review really stuck out to me because at least when I was really, I mean, really getting into PC gaming heavily, like, I mean, like the hardware components of it, like actually caring what they are. I remember the 6670 being this thing heavily recommended by like everyone for years for like an $80 or less graphics card. Those don't even exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a big shame that they, there's no entry point, good gaming graphics, um, that you've got to, I mean, there is right with the, the Athlon G series and the, the Ryzen G processors that, that level of performance way surpasses that 6670, but, you know, trying to upgrade a system with a hundred dollar graphics card just isn't a thing anymore. Uh, and that's a shame because I really enjoyed those cards because that was the, the price point I bought at was, I remember um, the first review I did for Rage was the 4850 and the 4870. Oh, yeah. um, we did the launch, flew out to AMD and in Oakland and on the battleship and learned about iFinity, the <laughs> Windows 7 launch, uh, the new architecture. It was just a fantastic experience and, you know, got that 4850 graphics card. I, I remember... Um, those are the 58, 5750s, 5850s, and 5900s uh, they were launching then. Because I remember I'd wanted the 4850, and I told my wife, um, you know, that's what you, she's like, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want a graphics card. She said, well, what is that? How much mm-hmm. does it cost? Uh, <laughs> what, right, is what is that? I was already, how do I get one? <laughs> it's, you know, you put it in the computer. It's playing video games. I want to play Grid. It's going to be super awesome. And they're about, you know, 180, 100, 200 bucks. And she said, number one, you're a dad. You don't have time to play games. Go cut the grass. Number two, <laughs> that's that's pretty expensive. Can't you? You're an IT guy. Can't you figure out how to get these one of these things for free? So I've been hanging yeah. out on Rage 3D for a, a long time. Was friend with the admins, been a moderator, and their reviewer had left, and they need someone to step in to go to this launch event, and they asked me to do it, and I said, "Yeah, let's go," and that that's how it started. So that, that was a, a really nice, happy little accident. Yeah. I mean, one of my earlier memories of the uh, 6000 series was actually my brother, Dan, who's the co-host every other episode of this podcast. And he's my little brother. I don't remember, like, my system had, like, a 560 Ti at the time or something. You know, this was late in the 360 generation when those consoles were starting to really show how old they were. And I remember, like, this default graphics card that came with a Dell computer was I, I think it was a 310m i think it was an oem mobile 10 so like this yeah and for everyone listening yes that would be like if there was a 3010 that's how low down the stack and it had an m after it and they somehow made a pcie version of it it couldn't run anything and for 40 bucks you could get a 6450 and like blow away the consoles or at least match them. And that was just hilarious. Like <laughs> how low you could go in price down the product stack and it wasn't completely worthless. 
Yeah, those are good cards. I remember the, the 5450, 6450. They were great HTPC cards. You get fanless versions. They could do the 1080p decoding for Blu-ray and DVD, etc. So, you, you know, back before streaming was ubiquitous and everything could do it, then that was how you were building, mm. you know, your little, uh, your little device to do that, to sit there and, and try and build a, a PC for the, for the big screen, as it were. So... That was, for me, one of the most exciting times uh, watching AMD, the late 2000s. And it got a little rocky, though, we have to admit, (laughs) for a while there. Uh, One of the points that I want to bring up to discuss with you is it seems like you really entered into AMD, you know, after working at Rage 3D, around the, you know, I'll put it solidly into the bulldozer era. And then you were able to follow AMD working there all the way up until Threadripper and right before or right at Zen 2's launch. I mean, what was it like watching the change in culture sentiment from, like, basically from Piledriver to Zen 2? Yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting time for sure. I mean, I joined uh, six months after I had been invited to an AMD event as a journalist, and I'd done this interview with Jim Keller, who was with AMD at the time, and he told me, Mm-hmm. We're on track to catch up in big core performance, and I'm like, he doesn't know what he's just said, or he does know. I mean, he absolutely knew, <laughs> but like, I'm like, I want to be a part of this. So, you know, I, I jumped in there and found a way to get onto the team and you know become part of what they were doing for the turnaround. And yeah, if the like the engineers were just. So many long nights, so many just dedicated meetings, just a lot of mm-hmm. hard work. Um, but there's this, there's this belief, right? And it was always hard watching. Like I went through like three, four rounds of layoffs. It was always hard watching oh. people go out the door, and you know, as they tried to manage the business profile um, and get back into profitability and make sure that they could protect the core of the company, the engineers, and get the new product out. Um, but everybody believed, everybody was on board, everybody was pushing, doing the extra little bit that they could do so that um, the product would come to reality. So you could have Epic and Ryzen uh, uh, product processes come out and start to really be successful. Right. And, you know, when Zen was launched and you became a senior product manager, I mean, so you, you really... Looking at your, and again, I, I recommend everyone listening, check out your LinkedIn profile. And so they can see your storied history, know what we're talking about in more detail. But I mean, you you managed, you know, a lot of the customer facing and customer purchasing habits and analysis at AMD. It, it sounds like there was never a doubt, though, in your mind and in most people at AMD's mind that they really were just going to catch up with Zen. Um, what, what do you think about? That's not what most people were thinking in 2016. <laughs> I was one of the few people who was like, yeah, why? I mean, they've caught it before. I certainly can believe it. What was your thoughts about how the general community was really not expecting AMD to deliver? Like, what was that like? Yeah, that was that was a lot of debate on that one. Um, and it, it boils down, boils down to show, don't tell. Right. You've got to put right. it's got to be real. You've got to put it in front of them. And you've got to have the proof points lined up. And, and so we was trying to find the right um, 
demonstrations, the right technology, the right messages to get all that together. And, you know, it's, you know there's a big team that worked on that. We were, started off small but mighty and grew um, to what you see today, um, just executing so well, getting the message out there and, and doing these things. But, then, you know, internally, you know, there wasn't a worry about um, would we. It was just about when. It was just mm-hmm. timing. And, you know, nobody was saying, let's wait. Everybody was saying it's important to balance quality and speed. We've got to have, like, that first one, if it's not right, isn't, yeah. and then, you know, if there's a, a you know, major bug or something, then we can't do it. We've got to have everything lined up. And we did the best that we can with the, the resources that were available, and it worked. Ryzen was a success, and it set up, uh, Epic and it set up everything else it's been doing from there. It's uh, it's a really really fun thing to have been a part of. Well, and you know when you say the resources available, that's a lot less than your major comp- main competitor. <laughs> I mean, QH Freddie writes in uh, just like other Patreons can, and he asks. As far as you think it's appropriate to talk about, what is the sentiment or attitude inside a company like AMD in general when it comes to competing against such an industry titan like Intel? Uh, you know, in general, the sentiment is focus on the mission, right? You've got to you've got to define your targets, and you can't let those be defined by your competitor. You've got to define them yourself. So when you have uh, a company like AMD, then it's very important, and this is what they did, was to go to the customers, whether they're gamers or whether they're creators or if they're hyperscalers or if they're you know, the, the major technology companies of the day, and ask them, what are the problems you're trying to solve? What are the challenges that you have? Where do you need help? And then look at your portfolio and say, can I solve that today? And then look at your roadmap and say, how can I solve that tomorrow? And then when you're executing to what the market wants, it's kind of irrelevant what your competitor is doing because you're not trying to one-up them. You're trying to put a valid, competitive, good product in front of the customer. And customers who have choice and they they get serve their needs – really like that, right? When they see that engagement, when you can walk away and come back uh, months, weeks, years later and say, we built this based on your feedback. This is how we approach the problem. Does this work for you? And it worked. They said, yes, they, they, they wanted it. You can see it in the results. Well, I have to push on this though. Your job, a lot of it was competitive analysis. Like, what did you expect Zen 1 to be competing with? Because it ended up competing with a quad core at 5 gigahertz that actually had some throttling issues to my memory. What what did, did is that what you thought in, Intel would have that year? And did you th- what did you think they would have to compete with Zen Plus that came out the following year? Well, you know, for good, good competitive analysis, you always war game a multiple scenarios. So you say, what if they... Don't take the the rumors, the leaks, the scuttlebutt mm-hmm. seriously, and they continue doing what they're doing. Scenario A, and then what if they take everything they hear as the gospel truth and they react exactly as would be the worst way for us? Scenario B, and then you go, well, what's the middle ground between those two things? Scenario C, and then you try to figure out where the commonality is, and then you look at that and understand this is what's going to happen. 
this is real world where we can expect to be. And we always, uh, for myself, I always ended up a little bit more um, pessimistic than what they did. That you know, what what their actions were was always mm-hmm. less aggressive and uh, more in our favor. At least up until now, yeah. right? <laughs> less aggressive and more in our favor than than what I thought they were going to do. So it was a um, very good, um, good moment. There was some, you know, some Hollywood moments in there, like, oh look, there's. They can't get supply out and they can't, you know, they've got this issue where the reliability and the heat's coming up. And those, you know, those, those decisions were just like, oh, wow, this is, this is unforced errors. What's something's going on. This is good for us, but can't capitalize on it by attacking that. We need to execute to our strategy, our roadmap, our line of development, because that's what the market wants. The market will figure it out. Well, see, this is the thing, too. If you go back to old roadmaps from Intel's that leaked, like, and I mean, like, pretty old ones, they were showing Ice Lake, I don't know what, in, like, 2016, 2017. I think people missed the point that, you know, I think it was Broadwell came out 2014, and then Skylake, I think, came out 2014. 15, 2016, somewhere around there. And then I believe Ice Lake really was intended to come out 2017, 2018. And I have a couple sources at Intel that tell me that no, really, there was an eight core design. It just never could be made because 10 nanometer didn't work. Like, I'm wondering if you're willing to speak on, though, were there competitive analysis you did where you're like, okay, well, we do expect Zen Plus to compete with an eight core Ice Lake, or was that scrapped eventually because it was clear it was never coming out? Or like, at what point did you expect some kind of an Ice Lake or Tiger Lake eight core to come out against Zen 2 or something? That's a good one. We were always anticipating it, and it never materialized when we thought it would. That's how I'd characterize that. You know, the, the, we were ready but for it. But there was anticipation. There was anticipation, and we didn't change the roadmaps based on those leaks. We just said, okay, this is just a tailwind. This is just making us go faster. Mm-hmm. And I think things could have been perceived differently with Zen. Zen, of course, was incredibly impressive. No matter what you thought about Intel's gaming performance or whatever at the time, the fact is you guys brought out an eight core that uses less energy than their quad core and is even in single threading, like, come on, like 80, 90% of the performance. It's absurd to not say that at least technologically that was the win there. Like I know in some benchmarks, Intel wins by 10% in gaming guys, but I was just like, it's, this is, I mean, AMD just won the technological war. Um, but I think things could have been very different if instead of Coffee Lake, they actually had an eight core ice lake. It brought 18% higher IPC out next to Zen Plus. I mean, that could have immediately probably changed how things were perceived. Although I think Zen 2 would have probably still been, you know, a big deal. Yeah. I, I mean, from that perspective, there was a risk. It would have been different. But if you look at where we were coming from going to, the massive jump would, uh, you know, if they had had, an, you know, if Intel had put an ice lake out there, then the gap would have been bigger in gaming, but it still doesn't blunt the absolute performance of the Ryzen solution. It would have been a success because it was a competitive choice. It delivered a good experience. It was a good product, standalone, no comparison necessary. It had the right features and performance and efficiency for the market. So there would have been uh, an increase in success for AMD no matter what. Oh, yeah, compared to otherwise. I mean, 
So I have a question here from another patron, Timo H writes in, and we've kind of answered it, but I guess I want to ask it specifically though. How much do companies adjust products, lineups, and their life cycles of some architectures in anticipation to or response to their competitors? If they do, how do you balance sticking to your own guns versus adjusting to potential upcoming competition? Yeah, like I said, you don't react to rumors or or leaks from the competition. You react to the market. You react to the requests for solutions to computing challenges. So typically, if you've seen, you know, if one company changes a microarchitecture or a feature or a direction or a product specification, they've got a good reason for doing that. They're not just doing that to throw something against the wall to see what you're going to do. They've had a request. They've, they see a market opportunity or a need. And if you've got the right connections and you're engaged in the business in the right way, if you're set up for success, you're going to have had that same request. You're going to have had it at the same time. You're going to be on, you're going to know the same thing that they knew to supply that. Right. So that's why there's, there's not a huge amount of ability to shuffle these teams. Like it's like move, changing a microarchitecture design is not something yeah. that happens on a whim or overnight. It takes time no. and iterations because the teams have, you know, it's a very complex thing and the, you've got to war game out all the scenarios and you've got to have a business case too. Like you're going to spend the extra money. How much money is it going to cost to implement this thing? Is that going to be reflected in the market results? Will we recognize a return on that? And that's where it gets to, you know, if it's a customer request and you can be like, yeah, because the customer's asking for it. And if it's a, well, we think this might happen, possibly, maybe, then probably not going to get implemented because you can't put numbers behind it. Yeah, I I mean, one thing that I've seen pop up is, of course, Alder Lakes from Intel is going to use Big Little on x86. Raptor Lake will continue that. As far as the roadmaps I'm aware of, Intel's basically betting the house on Big Little for a lot of their consumer architectures over the next five years. And then now, and I can't confirm anything about this, but I know that some rumors are coming out about Zen 5 having Big Little. And it's been kind of funny to see people go, oh, they're copying Intel. And I'm like, no, if, if AMD is working on Big Little, it's I would say it's probably because they also thought it was a good idea around the same time. Not like, yeah, I don't think there's ever been a time where you just copied the competitor's game plan at any point. No, that's it's like, I think I've you know, given a good number of reasons why that doesn't work. Cause you'd be too far. By the time you find out about it, there's so much far ahead of you that to, to do a good job, um, of creating a competitive solution, you'll be behind in the market, so you miss the opportunity, or it's not enough of an opportunity left to, to pay for it. So you've, you've got to base it all on your competitive intelligence. I have no idea what Zen 5 has inside of it. That's, sure. that's <laughs> even I didn't expect you to do any big reveal. I'm not leading <laughs> I mean, that. Even, <laughs> even inside the company, um, I know that they were working on it while I was there two years ago, mm-hmm. but they weren't telling anybody what they were doing, right? There's, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of isolation between the different departments. They don't want to show off too early what they're doing because of the potential for leaks. To switch gears a little bit back to Zen 1, Clean Sweep writes in and says, as someone who jumped on the AMD train with Zen 1, I was fascinated by how turbulent the first few months of AM4 and Zen's life on the market were. 
Between custom BIOS revisions and even motherboards being end-of-life super early, it seems like there was a lot of back and forth between AMD and motherboard manufacturers. What was that like? And what was the hardest thing to convey to motherboard manufacturers around this momentous launch? Yeah, that goes back to show, don't tell. You're asking them to um, make a big bet with you, and they're going right. to make the biggest bet that they can. Um, you know, within the risk profile of their business and what their funds are, what mm-hmm. their engineering resources are. And you, as you execute and iterate and show their success in market, they will invest more and more. So that first generation, you know, we're, we're coming off of AM3 Plus and FX and FM2 Plus and A-Series. So you had a lot of things changing. You go into DDR4, you go into a new socket, you go into a new architecture, you've got a brand new uh, set of BIOSes and all those kinds of things, new chipset. There's the you know the problem of you know how much resources you can get in there, how are you going to launch all these different models because you know everybody wants choice in the market. Everybody has their favorite form factor. Some people love ITX, some people love ATX, some people love extended ATX, micro. There's so many different things that they have to do that you have to prioritize and you have to pick your favorite and you have to do something first and you have to learn in market. And I think that the uh, PC market at the time had kind of been, uh, I want to say, air quotes, spoiled in that because there was a simpler market with a single uh, obvious choice that the mm. you didn't have to do all your learning in public. You could do it behind the scenes. So, you know, you could give... You could give processes to the mobile makers and have them develop them and figure out all the kinks and tweaks behind the scenes and launch when it was all just so. No one was telling AMD, slow down. Everyone was saying, hurry up. I need this now. Where is it? Why don't I have one? Just give me one board, right? So we tried to balance all of those things to maximize the opportunity and the timing and I think that one is uh, where you can see evidence of where we were playing against the two different kinds of product that might come yes. out from Intel, right? Like if you thought that it was just going to be yet another heated up Skylake core, you might wait. If you thought there was something else coming that had a bit of heat to it, then you would absolutely be like, let's get to the, you know, let's get this out there as fast mm-hmm. as possible, make the most of the time. Um, and in between is the reality, right? The, you know, that they had coffee lake and they had their boards and we had ours and there were trials and tribulations but there's i mean nothing no launch survives contact with the public right people doing things you just didn't think of for the test programs we see it even now with the latest boards from both many uh, sides of the fence they're still going through some of these uh, different challenges well when it comes to competitive anticipation then i think i want to bring up this one next Threadripper, right? I know you had a lot of, you, you had your hands on Threadripper a lot. Was this, I, I think I remember it being said that this was some sort of Skunk's Works project next to Epic and next to the Ryzen consumer lineup. Like, was this built in anticipation of possibly Intel bringing out some other big things? Or is it just like, oh, this is a logical thing to launch, so let's launch it? I mean, what, what can you tell us about the planning and, you know, the inception of the Threadripper idea. Yeah, Threadripper was because, you know, myself and a few other guys saw an opportunity on the roadmap. You know, we had this eight-core Ryzen. We had 32 cores uh, Epic. And there's this, this this hole in between. 
both in price point and in market segments, by what's going to go into HEDT, what's going to go compete at that workstation-style PC. We could you know, sell Ryzen there, but we've only got eight cores. The competitor's got 18. What do we need to put there? Mm-hmm. Well, here we are with packaging and scalable technology that will let us get 16 really easy. And we can do massive amounts of I.O. and memory bandwidth. And it's uh, because it took the, the best parts of the existing development of Ryzen and Epic, it was a, a relatively inexpensive and light-touch project to get off the ground. So we, mm. you know, we, we kind of started off Skunk's Works and pulled together the you know, the feasibility studies, the development, the plan, the proposal. Uh, in fact, my boss at the time uh, pitched it to the, the general manager of the client business unit uh, in the back of a cab from uh, Taipei <laughs> Airport to Computex and said, this is what we want to do. This is how much it's going to cost. This is the market opportunity. Mm-hmm. Here's the units, the revenue, and this is you know, what we think we're going to be able to do with it. And by the end of that 20-minute cab ride, he'd said yes. And we had then formal mm-hmm. approval, put it on the roadmap, add some resources to it, um, and go do this program. And then that, that's how that came about. And the first and second generations are just uh, amazing. And now the third generation is even better. How do you see the positioning of Threadripper, you know, moving forward? I think it, and, and yeah, uh, that was always my impression, kind of what you're saying. Like, hey, we have Epic, we have Ryzen. If we put two of these dies, we can make a 16 core. It's not that much like R&D to just kind of make a half epic for HEDT. And that's what Zen Plus was in, in you know iterating on that. Zen 2, though, kind of started as that. But now there's Threadripper Pro. It's practically an epic setup that's overclocked. So it also has high clock speeds. And I mean, Threadripper was kind of positioned as this just... I'm be honest. It, it made a mockery of Intel's HEDT <laughs> pricing. I mean, like, let's be honest, guys. Um, I had uh, I have a friend who has a Broadwell E engineering sample, one of those ones you get off eBay that has ten cores. But I remember if you wanted the legit ones, those were like seventeen hundred dollars or something hilarious. And then you're just like, you're sixteen for a thousand, you know. At the same time, though, you're seeing Threadripper's prices very high. As I think AMD just without dispute holds a iron grip over the HEDT market. How do you see the segmentation of Threadripper and Ryzen evolving from here? Because Threadripper is kind of blending into Epic and there's rumors, of course, and some, I know there's a decent chance you're going to get more than 16 cores with the consumer side in the next few years. How do you see Threadripper falling into that? How do you differentiate when you have so many cores on consumers and the prices are getting close to epic well the first thing i'd say is that what makes something a server processor isn't the number of cores there is a lot more other things on the platform that that create that um value prop so the reliability the long-term uh availability the features for management for security for large memory capacity for large storage capacity for use with um, operating systems and the validation of all those things is not the work of a moment or inexpensive. And those are the things that make an Epic an Epic. And a lot of those things don't happen to Threadripper Pros or, pro- or Threadrippers. That's why there's different memory listings of like what's the compatible memory, what's the recommended memory, right. which ones you can use, you know, fully uh, registered DIMMs versus unregistered and ECC versus no ECC, et cetera, et cetera, and overclocking capabilities. 
those things uh, segment those products pretty pretty carefully and it's you know what makes a server a server you know used to be the the pizza box style even though the for you rack mount but you know now it's not uncommon for an enthusiast to go mount their pc on that mm. and have it in the next room so they don't have to hear the noise when they're gaming right uh, away from it so yeah it's um there's a lot of things it's more the use case than um the the number of cores or even the pcie lanes it's a, a big thing so there's a ton of different markets out there um not everybody wants a rack. Some people like the, the workstation or desktop form factor. Other people love racks and they want all of their machines in one place at the end of the row. So from you know different computing labs or universities to um, small businesses or design houses, you know, render farms, etc. There's a ton of different form factors. They have different needs. Some people want to be transactional. Like some Epic processors will run the same workload their entire life. Some Threadripper processors will mm. change uh, their job that they're running every two to three months because they're part of a cluster and a, and a deployed algorithm and they're doing a big render, you know, whether it's something like Blender or yes. something else. And then, you know, other things are just, you know, it's never the same moment to the moment because it's a desktop PC. So the segmentation, I think, is great. They've got the, the right approach there. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, like, let's say next year, right? Let's just say Intel moves to, like, 24 cores or something on desktop. You don't think, like, increasing core counts on consumers, any of, the, any of that's going to be, like, held back by segmentation with Threadripper, that they're just different platforms, that AMD will just bring as many cores as it thinks is necessary, or... Yeah, again, it goes back to uh, don't react to the competitor, react to the market. So look right now, where are the consumers who want 24 cores? Are they saying, I don't want all these PCIe lanes and memory channels that Threadripper offers me? Um, I want just the cores and nothing else. Thank you. You're, you're overcharging me with inflated platform costs. Is that a conversation that's going on? I haven't heard it personally, but that would be the way I would look at it, right? So it, it really depends on where you see the market need. You can you can try to force things and showboat and say, look, I'm just going to drop all these cores right here, <laughs> um, which is you know it's pretty similar to what we did with Threadripper, which is just lay it out there and say like, come at me, bro. But that you know it, that's because we knew we'd won. We really had it there. It's a much more competitive uh, solution now, and be more strategic uh, to look at it. Be my approach anyway. You remember uh, when Lisa Sue first showed off the eight core? What ended up being the thirty eight hundred X, and there were still people doubting that they were going to launch sixteen cores, even though she had showed a die with one of the CCDs clearly missing from where it's going to be placed. I don't know if you have any thoughts on or memories of that, because that's what you just reminded me of by saying, "Of course, you launch your best product." There are a lot of people assuming AMD for some reason couldn't go above eight cores with Zen two or something. <laughs> Well, that's a little bit of the, of the fun of being able to um, announce uh, how you want to and what you want to, and also understand your market segments. Um, yeah, people want to believe what they want to believe. It's why we have day one sellouts of things instead of people waiting for independent reviews, because yeah, mm. people already decided what they want and why they want it, and then they go find the, the, the data that supports their decision, <laughs> right? So. Yep. 
If well, you did reviews, you know this, you know, you know, being a tech editor, how often in the comments, it's obvious people are just, they like you when you tell them what they were hoping to hear, yeah. and then they'll find someone else to read the review from if they don't like what you exactly. said. That's why you got to have people that speak the truth and tell you what you, uh, what it is. And it's got to be database. You got to see the data, what they basing these conclusions on. Uh, you know, that's why you need things like the performance guides from the manufacturers. So they can say, this is why I believe I'm a good fit for the market. And then the independent reviewers can go and say, well, well let's validate that. First of all, the claims they make are accurate within, you know, testing uh, vagaries. And here's what I think the market is and what I think the actual value prop is and whether I think they, you know, whether they hit their metrics or not. Is this going to be successful? Is this the right thing for you? That all takes a little bit of time to digest. You know, it's it's a tough thing to do on a short time frame. Um, and it's a tough thing for everyone to read and understand on the launch of a launch day of a product, especially when today, you know, like there's such scarcity that if you hesitate, mm. then you're not getting it. I mean, now that we're on this subject, let me ask you, you're, you are a unique person to ask. I mean, you've done the editor side. You've done the inside the big company that the editors cover side. How do you see like the, you know, gaming hardware journalism in today, you know, with where NVIDIA is, Intel, AMD, like um, a lot of people reminisce about the 2000s, like, you know, Anon Tech and Tom's Hardware Days and stuff like that. Like, how do you see tech journalism now? Like, do you do you are you, do you have a lot of criticism for it or? Oh, that's interesting. Um, no, I think I, I really like tech journalism today. I, I wish there were more people doing it, more of the small guys. So like if you, anyone who's a small channel and thinking, oh, I'm never going to do it, never going to break it, just keep going, keep pushing, keep breaking through. You never know what's going to take off. Um, but always do it, not because of the viewers' numbers or because of the, uh, the feeling of importance, but because you feel like you've got something important to say. That's the key thing. So tech journalists are incredibly important. The independent analysis and review um, is crucial. Like, just think for yourself about how you buy things. You don't do it because of the manufacturer's claim on the box of the website. You base it on real-life reviews, people who use it. Like, you, it preference, brand preferences, whatever he talks about these days, but what it comes down to is, is it going to do what you need it to do? And sometimes the only way to do that is to buy it and find out. But there's some of these components are just so expensive that it's it's mm. just not feasible to say I'm going to buy it and then lean on the 30 day return policy or the manufacturer's warranty or whatever to get my money back because you know a lot of a lot of these things don't work that way. So you've got to. That's why you know as as toxic and as horrible the comment section gets, they're <laughs> crucial. Because that's the real flavor of mm -hmm. the market when when people are PO'd about the state of availability, then that's the sentiment, and you gotta you gotta address that. Uh, so, yeah, the the tech journalists are a crucial part. They are the voice of the consumer. That's what I tried to be when I was at AMD was the voice of the enthusiast into the product management and the business development, and so the engineering departments. So it was like you know. These are some cool ideas, guy. But what people are really excited about is the opportunity to do X or Y or Z. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's really what they're looking for. They want to understand the value of why it is the way it is. Why did you make that decision? It doesn't matter so much as you know. Sometimes it doesn't matter so much what the decision is, but why you made it. Well, 
you were at a, a melodic warrior has a question here that kind of ties into what you're talking about it says hi james my questions are what was the main priority focus when zen one and rdna was discussed in inner circles at amd how different is their priorities now you believe compared to when they first launched it seems that this time around radeon is being treated better than almost ever before. And I think what he's kind of getting at is when it came to Zen 1 and RDNA 1, like what was it said most of, hey, we need to nail this part of it? Like, I think we've talked about Zen 1 a lot. I am actually curious how much you can talk about RDNA, like what what the mindset was around that. Yeah, so, um, I mean, for the RDNA design cycle, I know as much about that as you. The, there was, I, I had no visibility or interaction right. to the, the radio and team. You don't know everything at I, AMD, even though you right, weren't there. Yeah, you know, people assume that. Yeah, the, there's not like, a, you can't just go to the internal uh, website and just go browsing through docs and, and read and find out yeah. stuff, right? There's, <laughs> everything's appropriately permissioned and, all of that things mm-hmm. and you can't just invite yourself to meetings or you know see a, an architect running down the hallway and be like hey you tell me what's going on <laughs> there's, there's no yeah. thing so i don't know anything about rdna one I, I do know that okay um win was the uh, was the <laughs> overall kind of like I, I remember countless forehand meetings with lisa and mark papermaster and other guys saying you know it's important that we have execution and it's important that we win so stick to the plan, right? Do your part. Go for the the biggest possible uh, outcome that we can achieve. And some might say, though, isn't that what you always say? Like, how does that differ compared to like five years prior? Like I'm saying, how does, you know, we want to win. How does that differ from what your experience was before, you know, this time period? Well, yeah, I skipped over a whole bunch of things. Like we want to win. This is the goal. Here's the tools to go get it done. These are the resources. This is the market opportunity. Here's why you should believe. Here's what the results are going to be for you personally. You like motivation uh, inside of big companies. Isn't a one and done. You don't just sign on the line for to join the company. And then everybody's like, go do your thing. You're there's a constant feedback. Like, how are you feeling? What are you thinking is going to happen? What you know? What can we do better? The that cultural shift, like um, you know, the, you can get defeated by rounds of layoffs mm-hmm. and by knowing that you're working on something awesome, but nobody recognizes it and nobody knows what you're doing, and you're not even sure if it's going to because you're you're trying to guess, right? You know the market requirements, but you've got no crystal ball. You've got no idea it's actually going to work. You've got no idea that some random event isn't going to come along and completely disrupt everything and move you out of your window uh, for opportunity. So it's, you know, part of that um, is a very important thing to, to keep the, the troops aligned on the vision and the message and understanding what it is that they've got to do. Well, so that's perfectly goes into Scott Ruff Schneider's question. He says, hello, James, can you please describe what shift occurred in AMD's approach to R&D product goals, targets and market goals in the stewardship of Mr. Reed and Dr. Sue? From a layman's perspective, I think the ship was righted and the company was leveraged into a better opportunity to succeed. But a technology company cannot truly be allowed the necessary room to be as innovative as needed without an engineer at the helm. Your thoughts and experiences, please. So, like, because you were just saying, you know, oh, we have, let's win and just tell us what you need. You know, there's layoffs, but we can do this and you know we can do this. So stay the course. Is that like what you would bring up the most or like what, what shifted under Lisa Sue and the current leadership that really 
I mean, like AMD's just on, you know, a winning streak right now. So yeah, um, you know, people like to paint CEOs as all seeing, all yeah. knowing, and the, yeah. the the be all and end all. They can do every job in the company and better than you, and you could just listen to them. And yeah, it, Steve Jobs designed everything in the iPhone, <laughs> right? <laughs> Not exactly. And you know, the, Lisa's a very accomplished engineer, but she's a much more accomplished business person, and that shows with the results, right? So Rory was really about finding the resources and a lot. You know, reshaping the business and getting that course correction and building the turnaround. And you can go back and look at the, the public statements um, on investor days. Like what he talked about the turnaround and the, and the uptick and getting back towards profitability. And he, you know, he made some really tough choices and then it was handed over to Lisa to then execute on the direction. And um, it's the, the, the feeling was like a startup, right? This was a 10,000 right. strong, worldwide, nearly, you know, 40-year-old organization that was acting like a startup. We can change the world. We can do great things. We've got to believe. It's going to come. You need to do your part. It happens with every little piece falling into place. We need a maniacal mm-hmm. focus on execution. You've got to get it done. And that um, that repeated ongoing message combined with the, the first – measures of success that we saw uh, turning things around really uh, was, you know, celebrated. You know, we kind of knew we'd done it six months before. It was public to everybody else. And then we had to sit back and watch and just enjoy the show. And I think it's fair to say at this point that AMD is taken seriously again. I mean, you know, I remember when Lisa Sue first started saying market leader, market leader. Everyone just says AMD is a market leader now. You guys did it. Like, what specifically, though, what moment, you know, I don't think, I doubt, maybe I'm wrong, it was just Zen 1's launch, but like, at what point do you think really everyone was on board that AMD was competitive at everything again and should never be underestimated in the future? Mm. Like, what product or event, you know? Yeah, that was probably probably an internal all-hands meeting where they mm. showed off um, an early um, head-to-head competitive demo of Epic. And they, mm. you know, we showed and said, you know, early days, first silicon, this is where we are right now, and this is the win. And we're going to get better before we launch. You're talking about Naples? Yeah. Before, mm-hmm. before it launched, before it's public, before it's known anywhere, just, you know, we had the first bring up, we got the first results, showed it off at all hands, and just, you know, at the time, a, a gobsmacking multi-thread performance use case. Like, it mm-hmm. wasn't Cinebench just going, hey, look, we win a benchmark. It was like, this is a real customer workload. This is where we're going to yeah. be. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of Cinebench and 3D Mark. Can we please <laughs> benchmark real things, people? Yeah, you know, so it was, it was a really, really nice uh, moment. And just, you know, everybody, that was when everybody got it. And we're like, all right. I'm glad I stuck around. What do you think externally when everyone started taking AMD seriously? Because I don't I don't know. Obviously, they started taking AMD much more seriously when Zen 1 came out, of course. But I mean, like, I still don't think people... I saw so many people saying, is this a one-trick pony? Will they really keep innovating every year? Like, what? What do you think it was Zen 2 that changed the external perception permanently or what? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, probably... Um, 
Zen 2 was the, 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 the milestone watershed moment for most people. Like the people who are super engaged in the industry have been watching and, mm-hmm. and hoping for this stuff. Yeah, they were like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. But, you know, Zen 2 was when um, when everybody was just like, oh, this is real and spectacular. Let's go. I remember I had like a Skylake quad core at the time. And I was still using that all the way past Zen, past Zen Plus. And I was just like, but I think Zen 2 will be like the biggest one. And then just seeing like 16 cores on consumers. It's hilarious to think that the previous desktop I built all the way back in like 2016, I was trying to decide, oh, do I pay 450 or 500 for a Broadwell E6 core? <laughs> or do I spend 300 on the quad core? And that was 2016. Now, just five years later, well, actually, I mean, I got, you know, the 3950X in 2019, you know, just three years later, three years later from struggling of if I should pay 50% more to go from four to six cores, I was just putting this 16 core (laughs) into a socket. And I just remember going, this is just, you know, so much has changed in three years. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a big moment. You know, no matter what platform I use for a main benchmarking station, one thing that I always know will be true is that a long-term sponsor of mine, CDK Offers, will most likely be providing the keys. CDKoffers.com is a keys website with legitimate keys that supplies PlayStation, Xbox, and Windows software keys at a reasonable price for what you're paying for. Nobody wants to overpay for anything, including over $100 for Windows. You don't need to get a legitimate professional key of Windows 10 for a reasonable price from cdkoffers.com. And make sure you use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get a big discount on Windows software and DieShring to get a reasonable discount on everything on the website. Go to cdkoffers.com today and make sure they know Moore's Law is dead sent you. So, all right then. Right now, AMD has Zen 3D on the horizon, probably next to some Zen 3 Threadripper launch this fall beforehand with an XT refresh, and then Zen 4 next year. Like, how do you feel? And I'm just asking you. This is, of course, not like, oh, what do you hear? It's like, no, but I'm asking you. How do you feel about AMD's current competitive position against Intel? Yeah, they seem they're super solid. I mean, they know... Um, they know what they're going to do and how to do it, and they've got the execution down. So it's it's really just continuing to iterate and listen to the market. I think they've done a good job of listening to gamers say, you know, this is what's important for me. And they've got a good job of listening to creators and workstation users saying, these are the things that I want to, and then carving out a, a solution that's kind of unexpected, like 16 cores into the, the consumer socket and saying, here, here's how we can address the balance in the market. This is what we can do. You can you can have an entry point here. You've got a solution over there with Threadripper. It's the, the choice is really what's helping accelerate. So I I, I don't see them uh, having any mistakes right now on the on the CPU front. You know, one might say you're a bit biased. You know, <laughs> you used to work at AMD, and but like uh, honestly though, like. Intel's been, I mean, it's just been getting worse over the past few years. I personally think things will start turning around for them 
obviously their company's financially perfectly healthy. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying though, you know, like in terms of like consumer perception and competitiveness, I think they'll start turning around near the end of this year. I mean, like, come on, like I know you're biased towards AMD, but like, do you expect when when do you expect Intel to swing back harder than they have been of just like the same old eight cores? Like, and and how hard do you think they can swing back in the next few years? Like, how soon? Yeah, I just think I, I kind of feel like you know I know that Intel is going to come back. What that's going to look like, I don't really um, have a good grasp on. It's just there. There's so much going on there as they you know, prepare to enter the GPU market, as they mm-hmm. evolve their server platforms, as they look at different um, accelerators. I think that they and they're, they're expanding into new markets too. At the same time, um, it's it's a nuanced uh, rebuttal. I think there's a lot of potential for them to come back very strong. Um, I hope that it's not a one-sided market forever, right? I mean, even today, it's not as one-sided <laughs> yeah. as it was back in 2012, 2013, 2014. But it's still really, uh, it needs to be competitive because competition drives performance, drives innovation. It's healthy. Competition is good. Exactly. You know, I, I know in some of my AMD videos, I'll wear an AMD shirt that came with a Radeon 7. But then I'll, I have an Intel shirt that came with one of my i7s that I wear in a video, too. Like, I want, that's really what I want. I want to be excited for crazy competition between these companies in a way that I just don't feel like we ever really got. I know Athlon was big, but... Uh, I mean, this is before you worked there. Am I wrong? Like, is your perception similar? Like, especially compared to Zen, like Athlon was kind of a blink of the eye, though, how long AMD was competitive compared to now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it certainly feels longer. I mean, this is a different kind of world, right? you got to compare early 2000s news and media reporting. They didn't have the same ability to do this kind of thing. You know, podcasts weren't a thing. YouTube wasn't a thing. No, yeah. Twitter wasn't a thing. So, you know, the, the information technology has amplified the everything that happens with the technology industry. Well, the now. knowledge people right. have about how many options. There's a lot there more are, right? tribal knowledge. There's a lot more um, ability to analyze and, and group think. So, good or bad, you can get much more opinions about what should you do for your next build and why is it the right thing and who likes this and who doesn't like that. Yeah, because I don't, it it almost feels like Intel was in charge before 2000, but there were a lot of other CPU companies popping up all over the place and dying a lot of the times. And then it was basically just AMD versus Intel on desktop. And then Intel was in charge. And then AMD was the best and buying Intel was silly. And then it went back to Intel being best. I don't know that we've ever really seen a period where both of them are really going full steam ahead, firing on all cylinders, like for five years straight. And I, I, I suspect that's what's going to happen between 2023 and 2026 or so. I think that's a good guess. I think that's a, that's a really good guess. Well, Joe writes in and he says, big little CPU architectures make sense in power constrained devices like phones, laptops. But what do you believe the benefit is on desktop? Why do you believe Intel is choosing to bring it to desktop within a year? Yeah, I think if you look at um, the use cases for desktops now, people expect to have a lot more of a phone-like experience. So the background updates, the constant connection, the always-on emailing and updating and 
refreshing. And a lot of those tasks aren't particularly um, energy intensive or performance sensitive, but we were using hmm. these giant, huge cores on them to execute them. And, you know, the desktop market doesn't care about power, but institutions do, governments do. They're always looking mm -hmm. for ways to, to bring down the uh, carbon footprint, the, the energy profile. So when you start talking about, you know, an organization can have 60,000 desktops in it and you mm -hmm. can save one watt per desktop, is that worth doing? Sounds like it to me. So mm -hmm. what if it's more than a watt? More if it's 10 watts, right? It's there, There's this push to, you know, we're all talking about, well, let's move to electric cars. Great, but it's it's a game of uh, incremental power savings. Every 1% helps. Mm -hmm. Every tiny piece helps. And having these uh, different style architectures is one way to, to do that because, you know, a, a big core, there's only so slow that you can run it, right? And, and mm -hmm. making it more complex by saying, well, it's got a, a mode where it runs at, you know, one-fifth the frequency with half the op right. cache and half the data cache and a quarter of the main cache turned off to save power. How much design effort mm -hmm. did you put in? How much other effort did you put in? And you really, the actual answer was you should have put the core to sleep and used a tiny core next to it. It's, uh, you know, the people are experimenting with this kind of stuff and they're trying to figure out, like, do I just, do I want to make my big cores even harder to design and manufacture and yield or do I want to make it more and more mm. easy to put these products into the market and achieve the end result? So lots of different nuances, I think. Every, you know, everybody says they, are, uh, they don't care about power, but everybody looks at their power bill and says, man, why is that so high this month? I know. <laughs> well, so how much of it do you believe? Because, uh, of course, you know, Intel, lap, uh, it's big for AMD as well, but laptop is so important for Intel. And then, of course, power is everything for server. But how much of it do you think is just like low power idle savings? And how much of do you think is maybe also just like an initiative to find a more efficient way to use die space and scale multi-threading? Because on phones, it definitely seems to mostly be about the low power thing. But on desktop, I know that the little cores take up, you know, four little cores takes up about the same die space as one big core. And each one's maybe about a third as good as the big core. So you would argue, oh, so it's 33% more efficient with die space. If we, you know, like how much of it do you think is about eventually just making even maybe server chips where they have like eight big cores so nothing gets held up and then just hundreds of little cores because they take up so much less space and if it's multi-threaded it's multi-threaded right yeah i mean i mean that's a misnomer there's definite limits to multi-threading and mm -hmm. uh you you can get to the point where you're spending so much time setting up your dispatch for the multi-thread that you don't ever actually get to do the job. So there's mm -hmm. there's ways and means and stuff, and there's limits. But there, that's one part of it. The other part of it is to recognize that, you know, around about 50% of the world isn't online today. So what, are the, mm. what do you want them to, to buy and, and to use? Do you want them to buy 10-year-old computers? Or do you want them to just, uh, you know, and overnight the, the world's energy use and heat production doubles? Mm. Or do you want to use you know, the latest, most efficient, smoothest, nicest technology? 
right? What do you want to do for all those countries that don't have the infrastructure that we have? Look, you, you probably remember the, the Texas infrastructure bundling, buckling under of the course. storm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, what happens in other countries where they don't even have that much of an advanced power? Where, mm-hmm. you know, you can go back and you see it in different uh, forums all the time people renovating houses you know you go look at a, a house that was wired in the 80s and then put four or five gaming computers in that yeah. right and then to have everybody like put four or five wiring wasn't very good in the 80s i found by the way right. it was, the standards were pretty <laughs> crappy and they didn't anticipate having five 1000 watt devices on the same circuit right <laughs> who, yeah. who puts five hair dryers in the same room in the 80s? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, maybe in the 80s. <laughs> okay, it's the 80s, so maybe maybe they have them in every room for all I yeah, can tell. But you, you see the problem I'm describing, right? That there's... Yes. You know, every, everybody likes to think of the most beautiful, perfect, utopian definition of the market that was going into, and that's not necessarily what the design points are. So... I want to ask this next thing. I mean, yeah, so it sounds like you're not surprised at all that Intel is going with big little and that potentially AMD might. Like, right? Because like, so some people are like, oh, I can't believe it. But it sounds like you're not surprised at all. Well, there's a lot of different markets, right? In a perfect world, I would like for every company to design products just for me the way that I like them or just for me and my close friends. And you see that <laughs> kind of uh, in the gaming market. Like, we're gamers. Get, yeah, companies have to care about us and just market to us and just design products for us. And realities are that no one's at that size yet. Um, the closest we've got mm-hmm. is Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo, right, making gaming mm-hmm. platforms. But everybody else is trying to find as many different opportunities and markets to sell their technology into. So there's going to be emerging embedded markets and uh, behind-the-scenes industrial markets that can leverage these style uh, cores and platforms where they're going to work incredibly well and be very efficient and deliver wonderful things for those businesses that are adopting them. And it just so happens that it also works in the desktop. So, hey, let's do that. Yes, I think that's... And then also, again, um, the the realization, I believe, this is my opinion to a certain extent, but like when I look at Alder Lake, that's eight big cores, eight little cores, and then it sounds like Raptor Lake is eight big cores, 16 little. They also just realize, well, yeah, but we can also, you know, it's mostly for laptop, let's be honest, but at the same time, we can just focus on really high IPC for some big cores and double these little ones at the same time, Um, but I'm retreading old ground. So my next question is this. What do you believe AMD's biggest weakness is over the next five years that could expose them to falling behind again? And it's a very open-ended question, whether it's mentality, product execution, the types of products they focus on. Like, from where you're, this is, this was your job, (laughs) is like analyzing markets, man. So I have to ask you, what do you think is the, I don't want to say likely because that infers that I think it's going to happen, but like, what, what is a possible mistake you think AMD could make or should look out? for making that could maybe make Intel come back harder than maybe I, than maybe we want. We want them to be equal, not have one of them crush the other again. Yeah, I would say that the, I don't see any signs of any of these, but the, the, my number one concern would be focus mm-hmm. and complacency, like taking their eye off of their core competency and their, their mission and saying, we've done it. Let's, uh, let's, 
relax a little bit and enjoy the spoils. Um, that's not anything I've ever heard from the leadership at AMD. Sure. So, I, you know, like I said, I don't see that. But that that would be the thing I had to pick. I, I, you know, knowing the guys there, the people that are working on the things, incredibly smart. Knowing the relationships that they have. They know what's coming in terms of needs and requirements, and they're anticipating and they're building the products to serve as best they can. Um, it's, it's just going to be a matter of balancing the focus and the passion to get it done, not try to do too much too soon, not try to um, scrape the bottom of the barrel, drop the quality to maximize the cost You know, with some kind of, I don't know, cost-saving program. I don't know what that would be. I haven't, like, I don't see any mm-hmm. evidence of any of those things happening. But I mean, those are the old mistakes that um, got AMD into the previous problem. So yeah, I, that would be. What I mean, I would say. how quickly, right? Do you remember, like, how quickly did AMD once they took the lead with Athlon just crank up the price to a grand and sit there? From my perspective, that's what happened. I mean, that <laughs> people who worked at AMD would say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 that is not like that." But I don't know. From where I'm sitting, it did seem like just almost overnight they lost a little bit of that hunger. Yeah, that's uh, that's. I mean, I, I talked to the um, you know, a couple of the guys that were working there during those times, and the, the, they remembered it as like, "Wow, we're on top of the world. We can." really push the limits. Let's go see, find out what is the, the max we can do here. Um, so it wasn't mm-hmm. as much greed as like where, you know, like it's blue sky, green grass. Uh, where do we go from here? There's no footprints in the sand. There's no signposts. Success this right. way. There's just opportunity in front. So let's try it out. And that's, that's how that happened. You're kind of like Intel with saying they're going to hit 10 gigahertz, right? Oh, we'll never lose. So let's really go for something nuts and try out all these radical ideas. And then uh, you forgot to actually make something that launches on time and works. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, there's, what you, that's what everything has to be balanced. There's going to be a realist mm-hmm. somewhere that says, but what, what are we going to do? Like you, you hear two schools of thoughts. Like uh, I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger says, you know, go talk to somebody and ask them what their plan B is. If they have a plan B, don't work with them because they're not committed. But Mm. every realist knows there are things you can't control. There are events that are outside of your ability to influence. So you've got to have a fallback plan. And, you know, wargaming those, even if it's not something that ever gets done, is still a requirement that you've got to have a plan B. Um, you know, it, but you still need to be like the pig in bacon and eggs for breakfast. The chicken was involved. The pig was committed. Well, right. And I mean, I find that at least kind of relating to things I've done, like I worked in the automotive industry. This was the plan A. Here's our fallback. If this doesn't work out, sometimes your plan B turns out to be a better idea yeah. too. Like the more you war game out of plan B, you're like, hmm. Is this what we should just be doing? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that can happen, and you can find that in a lot of different places. So it's it's good to encourage innovation. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would worry about when it comes to AMD isn't so much the innovation. So, and and, and I think the worry about the pie in the sky, you know, like what if we do a thousand chiplets all over the place? If anything, it seems like that's what Intel's doing right now. Um, I, I feel like what I'm hearing is AMD staying pretty grounded and iterative. And it, I mean, iterative in a good way, not in the 5% IPC per year way. I mean, like the, oh, let's do what we know we can do and get it out on time. 
Well, the only thing that worries me, though, is I know that like Zen 3 has some like crazy margins behind it, <laughs> like $800 for two 70 millimeter squared chiplets and a 12 nanometer. It's on 12 nanometer iodi. Like that's the only thing that I would worry about is if they bring out a crazy Zen 4, they're like, you know, $1,500 or something. Like, I don't know. But I don't know if you have any thoughts into if like their margins are clearly higher now than they were with like Zen 1, I think. Do you see AMD easily being willing to go, okay, we had fun with the 80% markup back to 40%, or, or I don't know how you see that or want to discuss that type of a conversation, because that's what I see as a weakness. Yeah, that's a market forces um, conversation. You know, there, there's a baseline model that you want to get, and then you go after, and then there's the opportunity the market hands you, and you can see which companies are taking advantage of it and which ones aren't in the current crisis. Like, where are you buying Two thousand dollar plus CPUs from what is the you know mm-hmm. who's changing retail prices? Those are the people that are like okay yeah I'm gonna yeah it's it's both smart and um, a challenge at the same time because you know this is mm-hmm. this is what markets do is the supply and demand and when you don't have supply and there's intense demand prices go up but it all you know mm. it's Zen 3 was announced before the sure. shortages, though, to be sure. fair, at those prices. But, and go look at the reviews. Who said it was bad value? Nobody. Oh, I agree. Nobody, right? So historically, 16 cores has cost you a lot more. The value that it represented in the platform is amazing. So that, that's where it comes back to is, is it worth the value? Is it worth the, the – I mean, maybe your concern is they're not going to make a product that is at my price point. Well, no, let let me clarify, though. I I would never make the argument, and some people I know did, that Zen 3 was like, oh, they raised prices $50, so they're evil now. And I'm like, "Uh, from where I'm sitting, they're charging... 450 for an eight core that crushes Intel's 200 watt, $600. Like from where I'm sitting, AMD is still being far more quote unquote generous than Intel. I didn't think the pricing was bad. I thought it was for sure the right decision. Charge what you can, don't go crazy. Right now you can make extra profits. So make the extra profits, put that into r and I think that I'm not saying there was a mistake or it was bad or evil with Zen 3, but I do worry, you know, 3D stacking, increasing the amount of chiplet with Zen 4, like if Intel comes out with a 24 core, is AMD willing to go back to Zen 1 profit margins easily? Or I don't, I, that's kind of what I mean though when I bring up, I'm not saying Zen 3 was like should have been cheaper or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a decision those, that the businesses make when they get there. Um, and it's <clears throat> that's one of those things that the, they can tweak mm. as they go, right? It's, it's very hard to go up in price. Right, you need a, a, an absolutely unprecedented market for it to be for you to be able to take the same product and then a day later say, no, no, that's twice as much today. Right, there's very mm-hmm. very few times you can do that. We're we're living through it. We're, we won't see it again. Fingers crossed. I hope. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll right. see. There's inflation for sure, but let's not get on that. But you know, inflation doesn't take into account, doesn't happen in, in six months, right? The, the, what we're seeing right now is much, much faster than inflation. But you, you've got these um, new products can always come in and come down in price, go on special favorite partners. There's, there's mm-hmm. a ton of ways to find your price point. 
And uh, it really comes down to, do you want AMD to grow into a company the size of Intel or NVIDIA and deliver technology mm. that that enables, right? Look at what they're doing today, um, a much, much smaller footprint than those other companies. Yeah. And look at how they're investing that money. It's very clear that that 50 bucks went into innovation and not into yes. um, just bonuses, Buying right? <laughs> right? So like, you, you saw what they could do with the, the company um, at you know, $2 a share and $500 products at Zen One. What are they going to be able to do mm-hmm. when it's an $800 uh, processor and it's – you know, $80 a share. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, there's there's an investment and an ongoing, where do you want to see them go? So always, always as a consumer, say that's too expensive. <laughs> you should mm-hmm. never, never yeah. say that's a fair price. You should always say that's too much. <laughs> well, I, with some of the fanboys I see now, though, they don't say that. They're like practically happy the 3090s, 1500 or something just because their team's winning or whatever. Right. Um, well, Actually, yeah, let me jump in then. I mean, how do you see Radeon, ver- the, the current landscape of Radeon versus NVIDIA and soon versus Intel right now? Yeah, they're looking really good. I mean, they're executing well. They've brought out successive generations with increasing performance, new features. They're doing the right things for the market. Um, it's it's They're really on track. Um Radeon is doing well. I think that they're going to continue to execute in that manner. What about Intel? Like, what are you expecting out of DG2? And I guess even just kind of where Intel will position themselves in this market that used to really just be two people. I mean, I guess you could argue Intel had integrated graphics the whole time, but you know what I mean. Yeah, so, you know, they're they're not coming in completely uh, unfresh mm-hmm. because they've they've been able to put um, graphics into CPUs and they know what drivers and all those things are, but they also haven't solved every problem with those things. And now they're coming in uh, with this. I, I think it depends on their goals. They want to win in these different markets, but which one do they go first? Uh, my expectation is it's going to be a good mid-range CPU. It's going to be a solid alternative. Mm-hmm. It might not be something that you pick first as an enthusiast, but to put in your mom's PC, you'd be very happy with it. To have it in a business class desktop working and providing uh, your display needs, you're going to be, mm-hmm. you're going to be very solid and happy. And the, that level of success will enable follow on successive increment performance. Would it surprise you? And and look, so RDNA 3 comes out next year, so people should remember that really we should be comparing DG2 to what it will mostly be competing with, which is next-gen products, not the current-gen. But, like, would it surprise you if, or if like, the top DG2 chip was, like, as strong as a 3070 or something from NVIDIA or 6800 from AMD? No, that wouldn't surprise me. That, that's, you know, it's kind mm-hmm. of top of my expectations, that's, that's, I mean, that's where I would want to, to try and be, um, both price point and in performance. That's a very, very good place right. to be. Okay. Yeah, because uh, you said mom and dad's PC or your mom's PC. So I was like, oh, let me see where his expectations are. Um, well, let me move on to some GPU questions to round this out then. I mean, Josh Trim writes in and asks, 
I was always fascinated by Crossfire dual GPU <laughs> chips. I had dual 7970s, then dual 580s before getting a Vega 64. What is the reasoning behind moving away from supporting Crossfire with two discrete cards? And are there discussions about future dual GPU chips? Intel will steal some spotlight from the industry when they launch Z. Perhaps an AMD dual GPU could steal it back, especially since no one cares about power draw anymore, it seems. <laughs> they say they don't care, but yeah. I mean... Say they don't care. I remember a whole bunch of, like, I remember the NVIDIA Fermi launch, and it was just a solid win, <laughs> and everybody said, but the power draw. I thought you didn't care about power draw. Why do you care about it? Because it's the, the thing you can criticize. So nobody cares about power draw until it's, the, you know, the problem. So, you know, dual GPU is um, a problem for, died because of DirectX 9, 10, 11. It, because mm -hmm. you know, twelve, they kind of started to address it with multi GPU adapter, but it's it's sure. still really hard because of the uh, latencies in the system. If you look at how you set up a warp or you know, how you set up the graphics scene and then process it across all the execution units inside of a GPU, trying to break down a scene intelligently and saying, okay, this car is doing this and this car is doing that, um, neat. You know, the only person that can really do that is the programmer. So you'd have to say, I'm going to have some intelligence in how I set up my threads and send them over to the GPU compute resources. And then you realize, oh, wait, I don't control the hardware spec I'm running on. This could be anything out there. I have no mm -hmm. idea what kind of hardware I'm going to be running on. And the, the number one thing that kills games is day one people complain about crappy experiences. Right, you stall all your momentum. Mm. If people say it's buggy, it's slow, it's black screen, it's flickering, I don't like it, it doesn't work, it crashes the desktop. That's a nightmare scenario for a game developer. And you know, the easiest way to get that is to try and run across multiple GPUs. <laughs> so, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's really, really hard to do. Now, the change in the, the graphics architecture from the driver's perspective and the API with you know, DirectX 12 and with Vulkan, so you can do it. But now it's down to like who's buying multiple GPUs when they're you know one not available and two not supported. So you need a, a market where GPUs are plentiful and in for, you know mm. fresh supply, and everybody can just go, you know what, fine, I'll throw two in there. Um, and you know you you've got to prime the market. So I think you'll see. If you know, we get to the place where multiple GPU tiles can be put into a board and mm -hmm. the programmer doesn't have to know all the intricacies of the hardware, but can simply say things like, okay, graphics subsystem, uh, tell me how many there are of you and if you're equal or unequal, and I will give you the, the render balance. If they can get to that simpleness, like even if you think about multi-core uh, workloads, how often do you see things that work well for a single workload across CPUs that aren't identical? Mm. Right, clusters are always matched, even the CPUs. And we've been doing that for how many years? Right. So now take that to to graphics, where it's most likely people you know would want to say, well, I want to buy a uh, a bursty GPU, I want to buy a big GPU, and I want to keep my old GPU from last time to get more out of it. So now I've got different feature levels, now I've got different performance levels. I want to do that. Okay, well, that's just, you know, that's too hard. But it's going to be the most yeah. obvious way of getting multiple GPUs in the system. So 
multi-GPU um, was a great thing while it lasted. Um, there was a lot of, I had a lot of fun with it. The scaling was terrible. I remember running mm. triple 7970s <laughs> in for Ifinity no. and three cards was, you know, like 20% faster than two cards. And yeah, which is in some games. Right. Yeah. yeah and I was trying to run Far Cry three, I think it was in, in triple Ifinity and you know, you needed the three cards to be able to run that in that resolution, but the power, you know, I, I remember seeing, I think I th- put a thousand and fifty Watts from the wall on my 850 watt Corsair power supply. And I was like, man, this is just getting stupid. I need to <laughs> reset my expectations. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think you just eventually go, Hey, I want to play the game. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like number one, like, and you, and I think that people have come to terms with this enthusiast, the more and more, um, overclocking kind of becomes less of a thing because they're kind of building overclocking into it, right? Uh, with the boosting of graphics cards themselves. Like, I remember pushing my 7970 to get to... I mean, God, I think I got that thing 36% above stock. I mean, which is absurd. Unheard of now. You're not overclocking graphics cards that high now. And honestly, it only went from about 230 watts to about 300. So eh, power was manageable, actually. But, you know, the more it becomes harder and harder to do that, the more it's like, oh, you've got to do all of this testing to get an 8% boost in performance. It's like, hey, man, when I boot up Battlefield or Deep Rock Galactic, it's like, you know, the most important thing is that I actually get in the room and play with my friends without going, oh, froze again, guys. Right. right. That's, yeah, that's uh, totally 100% the, uh, the best experience is just when you actually forget what the computer is and it's mm-hmm. you and your dudes and you're having the just the time of your life for just a few moments. That's that's what sells PCs and game systems and games. That moment, and the the developers know that, and they don't want to break that. Mm-hmm. Worse Mensch writes in and asks, "Hi Tom and James, I'm very pleased with the lineup AMD released last year. I bought first gen Ryzen and always ask myself how much work goes into designing the chip or the architecture versus how much work is required from the software side. Is it fifty fifty in terms of resources, or does one outweigh the other? Well, for for Ryzen, um, it is you know very heavily balanced towards the architecture and the silicon implementation." You're not getting a lot of uh, software effort for a CPU compared to the uh, APUs. Not to say there's not a mm-hmm. lot of software effort. There is a huge software effort, but it's you know the balance is way more mm-hmm. on the CPU side. Firmware takes a long time to bring up. Um, you know, managing all of that, and I don't mean just BIOS, but I mean like the microcode. The actual uh, things that run it on the CPU day to day, all the different boost models, you know, you know what you're talking about with boost and overclocking and boop upping for graphics cards, you know that that <laughs> the reason why they modern cards have the boop up mode where they automatically boost is because they're getting so much more complex and different workloads can light up different amounts of silicon, and that adjusts thermal profile because they have so many cores, so some of them can right. boost to much higher clocks than others. Uh, depending on what kind of workload is running through it. And that changes every, you know, 16 milliseconds, 8 milliseconds, 5 milliseconds, because the frame changes. There's a, you're starting over again. And depending on which compute unit can boost higher than the other compute unit, are all the best boosting ones close to each other on this yield? Are they far away so they can, on average, boost higher, right? right. I mean, there's so much involved. Yeah, now. and all of that is, you know, not programmed manually. That's all software and firmware 
running to, to, to manage all of that stuff. So it is a, a massive software effort, but on Zen 1, it was much more on the implementation and, and hardware side uh, because it was <clears throat> compared to bringing up a, an APU a lot, lot easier. Okay, well, um, I guess I have one final question here. And it's from someone who named himself a special thanks to Riza5. So I guess he's just giving himself special thanks every time I say his name. Um, He says, I am surprised and happy when I find smaller YouTube channels that are able to review new hardware products such as CPUs and graphics cards. But I am curious as to the insights of a PR person at such a hardware company. What do these new channels typically do to convince you or your colleagues to send them free review products? Roughly what percentage of requests are successful or rejected? What does the decision-making process look like? Well, that's a great one. So um, number one, it's going to be about budget and time. So if we're coming up to a big launch announcement and people are starting to hear the, you know, Ooh, there's something new coming and you start saying, Hey, I'm a new guy. I've started my channel. I've got one video. I want to review your new product. Then you're, you're pretty much not going to get included because, you know, we've, we've already got a list of people that we want to work with. We've got a budget allocated, we've got hardware allocated and we're, we, you know, we, we have a lot of effort into making that big splash and getting the word out there and getting the independent reviews. Because like I said, the independent reviews are gold. They are what you need people to be able to refer to someone other than the company and say, this does X, Y, and Z, and it does it well. So the way to, for smaller channels, the way to do it is to wait until it's off cycle, wait until the, the noise has died down and then say, here's what I do, here's where I am, and this is what I want to do, and where can we start? And uh, you know, the top mistakes I saw from people were they would uh, want the newest, latest hardware or nothing. They would want mm-hmm. exclusive access or access to executives to, for interviews. <laughs> and they would uh, – would... What, you can't get Lisa Sue on here for the next episode? Just call her, man. Why not? I, mean, I could call her, but she won't pick up. So <laughs> you could try, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. And, and then they don't want to commit to, to timelines or uh, share what they plan to do, or they want you to tell them what to do and say, I'm sponsored by you. Mm. Right. So you, you've got to have a voice and an identity and an audience that you want to go after. And it's all about relationships. So you've got to be easy to get along with. You've got to be responsive. You've got to do what you're going to say. And you've got to demonstrate uh, that it's – so, I mean, for, for Rage3D, when I became the editor there mm-hmm. and doing the things, I got lucky with my first – very first event was AMD. So then when I was like, okay, so I'm reviewing graphics cards now, but I've got this um, – I had a, a, a Xeon quad-core Kentsfield CPU at the time and uh, a mid-range motherboard. And yeah, everyone's like, cool, but you need a faster CPU and a better motherboard to test all your stuff if, you know, so I know what to buy because you, you're bottlenecking. That was, you know, back then people were saying bottlenecking. It drives me crazy. And the what I was like, was like, okay, well, how do I get motherboards, memory, storage, coolers, cases, power supplies so I can build up my test environment while I ask for samples for a review? And I would just reach out to different companies and look, you know, go to the website and look and do all these kind of things and ask them, you know, can we work together and show them my work? This is what I've done so far. This is what I'm doing. 
and some of them would just not answer and some would reply back with not at this time and some would say, yeah, here we go. And that's just what you do. You work through it. You start you know, at the bottom of the ecosystem and work your way up. So I started with a lot of memory and case mm. fans, <laughs> things like that, and eventually managed to get into yeah. motherboards and graphics cards. And then I was getting to where they would ask me, hey, we're about to do the launch for the new graphics card. Do you want one? Yes, please send it over to me. <laughs> and you know, got to be part of the launch review cycle for these things. Um, that's, that's what it takes is just, you've got to, whenever you work with these people, tell them what you're going to do and the timeline and then stick to it. And even if you have the most wonderful reason in the world for not doing something, when you apologize and say, here's what's changed, don't do that more than once for that particular product. Make, make it, make it a priority. Because everybody recognizes we've all got lives, we've all got families, yeah. we've all got other constraints on our time, but someone has to account at the end of every quarter for all the money that they spent. And even if it was just mm-hmm. 50 bucks for a case fan and shipping it to you, they've still got to say, here's the ROI on that, here's the return. And if it's zero, then they're going to get told, man, you, you might, you're not putting the money in the right place. So you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to generate um, something to show for it, and that's not necessarily a positive review. Um, and part of being these reviewers is you you're engaged with that company now. You've got their ear. This is the time to ask questions, but ask smart questions, right? Don't come in and say, "Hey, thanks for the case fan. Do you think you'll ever develop a space laser?" Right? You've got to <laughs> you've got to be in in the realm of what you're talking about and uh, directionally on those kind of things. And the best thing you can do is represent your audience. Hey, I saw a bunch of people read my review and said they were going to buy us because of here's where they bought that based on my review. Thanks for sending me that sample. We made a difference in that person's evaluation of your product. That right there shows how it works. And how much of it, though, is, you know, getting the reviews they want out of it? Because NVIDIA, I'm sure you're aware, is very heavy-handed sometimes in who they send samples to. And not so happy if you don't say what they wanted you to say. So I've seen that and reported on. When I worked with NVIDIA, writing graphics card reviews for the world's largest ATI fan site, they never put any restrictions on. <laughs> they never had anything bad mm-hmm. to say. They would invite me to briefings. They would answer my questions. They sent me products, and they sent me the reviewer's guide. And afterwards, they said, thanks for taking a look at our product. We really appreciate it. I didn't have any bad experiences. I don't you know. I don't know. Yeah, that was 10 years ago as well. So pinch your soul, right. change of guard. You've got to keep your principles in mind, and that comes down to your audience. Like, You've got to know why you're um, why you're reviewing this thing. You can go validate the manufacturer's mm-hmm. claims, but then look at why would I buy this card? Why would and then if you don't feel like the right target audience, put yourself in the mind of the right target audience to say, you why would the people who who would have this kind of money to spend on this want to buy this? What are they looking for? And if you don't know, go ask, right? Go get the feedback, yeah, um, and put that out there because you know honestly. The, where it comes, where it starts to fall apart, and you get, I think, some of this pressure from companies is um, people who have a direct connection to a company for samples and products and strategy. Mm-hmm. 
make a publication or a video and say, why did you do this? And then like, I'm always sitting there going, well, did you ask? You have their ear. They email you. You didn't ask them why they did that? What was their response? Why didn't, mm-hmm. why didn't you ask them? Why am I sitting here going, I don't know why they did it. Why did you tell me? That's where I think that comes from is they want to look at these things because they're trying to say to people, look, here's the value prop that we're pushing to the consumer. Some of it's just people who are inexperienced. Some of it is just because they have a very um, matter-of-fact way of dealing with the press. Here's the stuff. Here's what you should look at. Go look at that. We're NVIDIA. We're so-and-so company, mm-hmm. and we know the market. So this, this is what's important. Uh, but as independent reviewers, you've got to go and, and challenge that and say, is that true? If it is true, say, yes, that's, this is correct. This is right. If it's not true, say, why do you believe that's true? And then get the answer. Mm-hmm. And that relationship will be worth more to you than uh, any kind of performance numbers or saying, aha, I gotcha. If you can explain the decision <laughs> to the market, to the consumer, you are going to get way more successful than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I and one thing that you touched on that is very clear, I think, is if you're a smaller tech channel and you want to do reviews, I would, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, I've done some, I make sure you want to do reviews because they take <laughs> a lot of time. And like you said, and, and again, I'm just being honest, I don't want to even bother with motherboard reviews. (laughs) And I think what these companies hate is when you surprise them or like you said, waste their time. Like I've had, oh, God, who was it? Was it Corsair maybe? I don't remember. No, it was a different, it wasn't Corsair. It was someone else was like, oh, there's these motherboards we can send you and RAM. And, you know, we'll give you all this stuff if you do these reviews. And I just told them, hey, look, I'm not going to though. Like if you want to do some other deal, we can do it. But I'm just telling you, I'm not going to do a motherboard (laughs) review because I don't want to start working on it and then realize I don't want to do it and waste your time. And I think if you choose to be a review channel, Man, you just better be sure you're like willing to work long hours and just know that you're competing with the best now too. I think when you look at if you when you look at reviews now from like hardware unboxed and gamers nexus, it's very hard to even attempt to even think about competing with one part of how they do a review. Yeah, well, I would say, you know, look back to where they started from and how they've evolved, mm-hmm. right? The the mistake anybody would make right now is to try and go head to head with LTT or a hub or a gamers nexus. Don't start off trying to challenge them. Start off trying to challenge mm. them 10 years ago, five years ago, right? Or a specific type of, review, right? right? Find your niche. What's your take? Like, why are you adding your voice to the masses? Are you mm-hmm. simply saying what everybody else is saying? In which case, I mean, there's a value to that because you can find people that identify with you because of your look or because of your geography or because of the the way you speak. It can happen. But what is the the value you're bringing? Are you you trying to create something a little bit different from everything else? What's, you know, how do you carve out that little bit of specialness for yourself? And it doesn't matter that it's 100% unique. It just means you're a little bit unique. What perspective do you have? That is going to be your key. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty good advice to end on. Although, I mean, look, I I do have to ask. You work at Sci Five. You work at Risk Five, and Risk Five is in many ways seen as. Well, I mean, I mean, let me ask you. Do you see 
Do you believe Risk Five? I mean, you work for this company, so <laughs> I expect you'll say some version of yes, right? Do you see Risk Five challenging like the X eighty six is like the standard, you know, in five ten years from now, or do you think it will be more of just for like specific designs and ASICs for you know? Yeah, I mean that the future of computing is not general purpose CPUs and general purpose GPUs or ASICs cobbled together. We're seeing a strong shift right now to accelerator cores, to accelerator functions. And, you know, for, for a long time, the main CPU that runs the operating system is described as, you know, this is an x86 system. This is an ARM system. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the value for the platform that's being run is run on accelerators. For, you know, for a software-defined networking experience or for, you know, like a 5G base station or from, uh, you know, that's all coming from the DPUs or for an AI platform, you know, in the last few years, it's been a couple of CPUs and a bunch of GPUs, but it's an x86 server. Sounds like it's not an x86 server to me, <laughs> right? So yeah. the current the current thinking is like, oh, hey, I made this new SOC and I added this new accelerator over here and here's how you program it with this API. And everybody goes, yay, that's cool. I love it. That's so easy. And if you say, hey, here's my new SOC, here's the new API to program it. Oh, man, i got to redo all my software. But you you would redo all your software for the other accelerator. What's the difference here? There is no difference. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to look at the value prop of like, why would you move from an x86 general purpose compute platform to a RISC-V compute platform? What would be the motivation? No, there, mm-hmm. there is no motivation. It, everything's working today. You need a value prop. And that value prop is the vertical integration that companies want to accelerate specific workloads. You can hear it all over the place. You know, Tesla designed their own chips. Google designed their own chips. Amazon designed their own chips. Right. Why? Because they want a specific thing that they do to be efficiently accelerated. I'm not even selling that chip to anybody else. And let's face it, they have the money, right? Like Apple has the money to build their own stuff now. So why not make it that much more efficient by being a specifically designed chip? Right. Everyone says, you know, that's an ARM chip inside of that Apple device that's doing so well. Really? Count the cores. Mm. How many ARM cores? How many non-ARM cores? That's Apple doesn't see it as ARM. They see it as Apple. Right. Yeah, it just started with ARM. Yeah, that's just the starting point. So, you know, RISC-V takes away the shackles of licensing because it's an right. open specification anyone can adopt. It's free. Go do one today yourself. Now, you probably need to spend a few years training on how to be a, a microarchitecture yeah. designer and then learning how to build it. I yeah. don't think I will just right. go do this, no. No, you could, you, could, you could learn how to build a little 32-bit, single-register, mm-hmm. simple little CPU core that could uh, you know do very simple, basic things. Not because you're dumb, but because that's the amount of time you have. <laughs> you know, it's simple to yeah. do that. <laughs> what uh, companies across the world can now do is bake their roadmap into a single ISA so a common set of tools work with it, and then work on extensions that develop it with the rest of the industry. Because Risk Five International, the standards body, is an open organization that anyone can join, whether they're an individual researcher, a university, or a commercial company. They're like a, a who's who of the tech industry now and build standards for everyone to do things in the same way if they adopt the extension. So you get portability of software. 
And then you can go build your chip and put in whatever customizations that you want. We have no obligation to tell everybody else, here's my special source and secret way of doing things, but base it on commonly and widely available software. So I think that the the explosion of RISC-V, the rapid uptick we're seeing, is all because of that freedom and that right. industry standards-based approach and because there's uh, you know some real good ways to make microarchitectures. Like the, some of the Sci Five cores are a quarter of the area of the competitor cores. Mm-hmm. So you use way less power, you lose way less area, and that can be translated into a smaller, cheaper chip, or it can put more performance into the chip because now you can put four cores where there was one before. So we're back to the big dot little style conversation. Yep. But now you're saying move, you know, just don't even have big cores, just have little ones because it's multi-thread. And, you know, it depends on your application. I mean, if you look at where it's headed, the big opportunity, I think, is in everywhere that's uh, adopting AI. Automotive, AI accelerators in the data center, networking, Mm -hmm. um, to a certain extent. You know, 5G base stations are getting smart because of, you know, trying to handle packets and and shaping traffic and prioritizing 911 calls over other calls in emergency situations. Um, uh, industrial IoT needs to get smart manufacturing, smart cities, smart cars, tons and tons of places where you have a particular workload that you could accelerate with a CPU plus GPU, but it's not very efficient. And some of these mm-hmm. places want to be battery, and some of these want to be mega scale, and efficiency matters in all areas. So you'll shrink it down and you'll go ahead and find ways to make more. Um, simple solutions that generation after generation, you're not using a proprietary API or interface or software, so you don't have to keep rewriting your code. It's just portable and it works. So that's what I see as the opportunity for RISC-V, and I think data centers are going right. to move away from, let's just throw x86 cores at it. I think that's a true statement today. Like People don't just put a bunch of x86 cores in a rack in a bunch of rows and say, that's a supercomputer. Right, there's always an accelerator in there. And I think that's why if you look at the Barcelona Supercomputing Center and the European Processor Initiative, they're designing their accelerators for exascale right. computing around RISC-V and the vector extension. So if you've got leading research, making the new discoveries, they're basing it on the standard, then you've got the, the, the impetus and the push that you need as well as the commercial adoption. Yeah, and I mean, like, You know, let's say there was a big, though, x86 company that I saw on some roadmaps recently is looking to evolve past x86 over the next six years, but needed. I mean, there are rumors that Intel's looking to, I'm just bringing it up by the company you work at. And it is interesting how you describe this and how Intel's, I mean, I don't want to get into it because I can't really say exactly all of it yet, but basically there is some decision-making going on with architectures five years from now. How much do we really need x86 and how much should we just evolve past it? What do we need to keep for legacy support and what don't we? And I maybe buying Sci 5 would be a useful acquisition for Intel. Yeah, like there's no pure x86 company today. They all have no. not only other uh, proprietary architectures they've licensed and are using and deployed and shipping in volume around the world, but they also have their own internal special little uh, cores that they've created with their own customizers themselves. So, uh, you know, getting into RISC-V into all those places, I think it's, it's going to happen over time. 
how fast that happens, who buys who, I have no idea. And you can't comment either way, right? No, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's that's as much as I'll press the question. Um, I do appreciate you coming on, though, man, and giving me almost two hours here. Um, I, I mean, I think we got through as many of the questions as made sense for how the conversation flowed. I, you know, I want to thank all of the listeners who submitted questions. Um, I, I don't, is there anything else you want to discuss, or do, you know, or are you ready to? What is it? I think you're in the t- same time zone as me, so you're probably ready to get bo- some barbecue or something down there, right? Yeah, it's, I'm on Central Time, so really appreciate the time. It was a great discussion. Thanks so much to you and all the listeners for the questions. Really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, let's see, uh, see what happens. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening, everybody. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Alkwari, Frederick Lau, James Crasset, Justin Pear, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herodrita, Full, Phil S, Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Deseru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Sean Vollmer, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Olethros, Tell, Say There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wontek, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin K. 
Cannon, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rauner, Robert Ducks, Michael McGee, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Matrick Grow, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, HardForeRoom.com, Sam McArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S. Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Longins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zoot Zoot Taylor, Trevor Power, Stu, Alenia, Nanan, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Frederick, Dan Galinowski, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Lane Perry, Joseph Carroll, Amen. Carlos Faldas, Carnivore Bear, Denovin Russell, Zaber Z. Burrs, Licky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Dehu Hu, Sarah Light, Anthony Garafa, Matthew Griffin, Eddie Del Castillo, Joseph Floria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Rule Abinetti, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23. Brian Riggleman, Samuel, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valco Molev, Gabe Langner, Rodney, Morton Svensson, Michael Deaton, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Scott Ref Schneider, Mai Sharona, Y. Truid, Roman, William W. Draper, Hare Ratz, Wakir Khan, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Millard, Sammy Malays, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Beachhorn, Benjamin Oshley, Zay Jits, Shield TV Couteau, Dane P, John Wissink, Sam Benzel, Mark Mitchell, Brucha, Jeremy So, James Anderson, Jesse Jaskowiak, Ian Clifford, Tyler Lindley, MJB1, SS, Jensen Wang, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 